Hi, I'm Ravi. And I'm Shell. And you're listening to Two Lost Souls. The podcast that guides you through the journey to becoming a CBT therapist. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to this episode of Two Lost Souls. That's right, we are back. We are ready and raring to go. Um, That's actually a lie. I'm feeling really tired right now, but that's okay because uh, we're back on the show and I'm really excited to be back talking to you today. Um, As usual, um, my name is Ravi Amrath and the title of today's episode is PWP to HICBT. Uh, and what we'll be talking about today is the journey and that transition from working at step two right through to step three. As usual, I am joined in the therapy room today by the superb Michelle Sudbury. How are you doing, Michelle? Hey, Ruffy. I'm really good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. It's been a while. You missed out on the last episode because you were feeling Hi. ill. Covid got me again. Oh no! COVID again too. Yeah. Gosh. Well, how are you feeling now? Yeah, fine. All good now. Like you, very tired. Busy, isn't it? It has been busy. Well, you've you've been undergoing many different sort of career <laughs> changes in the meantime as well. Um, how's all that stuff going? It's going really well. Yeah, I'm making that move across to the new service and leaving behind the old sadly but yeah making that move um feel, yeah it feels like I've got like 19 full-time jobs at the moment but I'm sure that'll get better soon that's that's because you do yeah well nearly not quite <laughs> I've got quite a few yeah <laughs> Uh, and we are we are trying to cope with the, the loss of you from our service as well. So um, I'm tr- trying not to feel very abandoned, but I'm really lucky that I get to sh- still share this podcast with you. So that's something which is which is very cool. Thank you. So in today's episode, um, as I mentioned earlier, we are going to be talking about the transition from being a PWP to HICBT worker uh, or a step three high intensity CBT worker. And this episode is actually the result of lots of emails we have had in the inbox. So just to let you know that if you would like to request any content for us to cover uh, on Two Lost Souls, uh, drop us a line, uh, reach out to us on Twitter at TLS underscore pod uh, or by emailing us at two lost souls podcast at gmail.com. So uh, we've had several uh, emails requesting an episode of this kind, and one such email is from Rebecca. And Rebecca says, I hope you're well. I'm loving the podcast. It's so interesting, insightful, and I'm learning so much, and I'm only on episode four. I wonder if you could dedicate an episode or part of an episode to discussing the transition from being a PWP to CBT therapist. 
I recognise that you both weren't PWPs before, so this might not be possible, but I thought I would ask and you could let me know. Best wishes, Rebecca. Um, so firstly, apologies to Rebecca and to everyone else in the inbox for my um, tardiness at replying to messages. But this is how you're finding out um, that we are doing an episode on transitioning from PWP to high-intensity CBT uh, by virtue of listening to it. We have the pleasure of being joined in the therapy room today by Gurpreet Shoka and Brendan Heaver, who have both made the journey from being PWPs to training to be high-intensity therapists. Preet, first of all, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Um, yeah, great to be here. So I'm currently doing my high-intensity training. Um, so I'm just over halfway through I've got about five months left of my training um and before that I was a PWP for about three years or so so okay got you amazing what about you Brendan yeah hi I'm I'm Brendan um I am currently a high intensity CBT therapist I've been a high intensity CBT therapist for three years prior to that I was a PWP for two years and prior to that, I was a mental health nurse for approximately 25 years. So great to be here. Thank you for asking me on. No worries at all. We've got lots of, of experience to draw upon here from, from both of you as well, which I think will be really helpful to answer some queries that we've received about that transition. And um, I suppose to start with, it would be it would be good to start from the beginning, actually, and ask um, both of you, how, how did you find working as a PWP and what, what were your reflections on working at a step two level with clients? Yeah, step two was, um, it was an interesting part of my career um, working um, at step two. I'm always grateful for that period of time I had at step two because it provided my transition from being a mental health nurse to being a CBT therapist. And without that, that period of time at step two, that would never have happened. Um, I found the day-to-day -day work, I found it very, very challenging, uh, mainly because of the realities of life working in a, in a frontline service on the NHS in a, a relatively deprived area in the West Midlands. And for a lot of the time, we were seeing people at step two who perhaps were maybe more like step three or step 2.5, which is perhaps a little bit higher level of need than perhaps the model was anticipated for. Um, but we still only had sort of like 30-minute sessions, six to eight sessions, 30 minutes, sometimes for quite complex problems. Uh, and that led to sort of like quite challenging working days, to be honest. It was very, very busy from the moment I sat down in the morning to the time when I kind of got, got to leave in the evening. I felt very, very busy like the whole time, very little time. I don't know if you found this, Preet, but I found very little like processing time in the day to actually really think and reflect on when you're seeing people for such a short period of time and one after the other. It just left so little time, so little, such little thinking time. So I've got to admit, that was one of the toughest two years of my career. Ultimately, it was quite rewarding in many ways, but it was tough, I won't lie. Yeah, I think I agree with that. The area that I worked in, it was. I think it was very rare to come across someone who was pure step two. We were working with a lot of people that were, like you said, Brendan, step 2.5 or above. Um, and I think... For me, I think it was a little bit disheartening sometimes. Like you, we're only taught the basics at PWP, so 
you know a bit of worry time or the thought challenging or uh, and that kind of thing or, or BA um, and sometimes it felt like you were doing these things but inside you knew that it wasn't enough and you know like that person needs more um, and I know we, we have the the option to kind of step up but sometimes when people kind of disengage from the service maybe what we're doing at step two isn't enough and then they just think oh it's not I don't know working for me I think in theory kind of it makes sense you do a bit of step two work and then if that doesn't work you step up to step three but in reality that wasn't always the case it was like do a bit of step two discharge and consolidate um and I feel like for a lot of people that I worked with it wasn't enough um so yeah I kind of struggled with that and in our service it was eight contacts a day so and trying to keep that in a half an hour session um was really hard sometimes especially sometimes if if someone would mention something it's like you don't want to question it don't want to open that box because you just haven't got the time so yeah I really struggled trying to keep it contained I mean that sounds like a a real challenge actually so just thinking about that intensity of workload that you mentioned there and 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 alongside the intensity of workload also working at that sort of stepped up level already as well how, how did you both sort of cope with that at the time I, I kind of got into like it, it probably sounds bad but like robot mode where it was like you've got to do what you've got to do in that session and then move on to the next one and that sounds horrible to say and it obviously it wasn't nice when you want to give that bit more but you're so restricted yeah it's 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 often mentioned isn't it by people who who've worked at step two that it can feel a little bit conveyor belty. I guess that's what I'm hearing. You know, we get a client in, they sit down. You've just started something with them before they're up and out again, and the next one's in. Um, you haven't got that time for that. Even the interpersonal relationship stuff, you know, that therapeutic alliance, that must be really difficult to build at, at step two. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's not a term I like, but it's one that I've heard before, the sausage factory model of mental health. And uh, it can feel a little bit like that at step yeah. two at times. As Preet says, you know, if you've got eight contacts at 30 minutes a time and you give yourself 15-minute intervals between those, that's three hours in the morning, three hours in, in the afternoon to give yourself a little bit of admin time. Uh, you literally do. You put the, you know, you finish with one client, you quickly write up some notes and then, you're already oftentimes running a little bit late for the next client or you just have to immediately get out of your chair and invite the next client in. And the amount of times you invite clients in, I was not truly prepared for those sessions because I just simply didn't have the time. And that is disheartening. I agree with you on that, Preet. Yeah. I think as well with, um, I notice more, especially when it's face-to-face, it's really hard to keep it to half an hour and it often overruns. And then, like I said, you're running late for the next one and it just, yeah. yeah. It's just like a- yeah, all the time. I can imagine that. I mean, obviously, we're talking about kind of the, the challenges of, of that environment in the workplace and the kind of the logistics of sort of keeping to those time slots and the knock-on effects. But I can imagine even just just as a person and, and knowing you both as being in this line of work of, of wanting to do your best and wanting to help people, I can imagine having quite huge impacts personally for both of you as well. And I'm just wondering how you how you coped with that. With difficulty, if I'm honest, Ravi, for me, the role had a shelf life. I could not have done that for much longer than I did because of this this reason. It's fairly persistent sort of professional 
um, frustration at not being able to do what 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 Pete mentioned, being able to do that little bit more for, for the clients, just because there's a lack of time, and I guess as well before we we trained at step three as well, probably a lack of knowledge on on certain things as well. We probably didn't have quite enough to help the clients that we were seeing, but when you when you don't have that that like professional dopamine hit of seeing people get better often enough then it can end up being disheartening you know for you as a practitioner and you don't get the necessary simple simple principles of behavioral activation if an activity is rewarding enough you know you keep on doing it simple we're 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 like uh mice in a you know in a maze if 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 an activity that we do time and time and time and time is met with a reward it's enjoyable we carry on we carry on doing it but by the time i finished it two years the rewards weren't enough the stresses did not were not sort of counterbalanced by the rewards of seeing people get better often enough or substantially enough for, for me to have wanted to carry on really and that's that's why I made the transition to step three. I think something that you'd um, mentioned there Brendan was something that I really agree with as well and I actually remember um, you saying this quite a while ago um, when you popped into one of our clinical skills back when I was a PWP about that lack of training as a that you get as a PWP compared to what you do at high intensity and being kind of halfway through my training I can really see that like the the depth of knowledge that you build training as a high intensity compared to what you get as a PWP you're not equipped for the role at all and I think that makes it a lot harder as well. I guess I mean that's really interesting and it's definitely something I've heard a lot in my experience of supporting people making that move from PWP to high intensity but I guess just for the the sake of balance I suppose in different services maybe where the PWP role looks a little different um, because a big part of the role that you do at step two it's around you know community engagement service promotion and development it's a lot more varied and unfortunately there are many um talking therapy services that haven't had the luxury of having staff to do that simply based on staff numbers and demand I guess um but I I do know of lots of PWPs who make step to their career it's a career pathway in its own right and I guess just for people who are sitting on the cusp thinking do I want to leave my PWP role do I want to go into high intensity who might be listening to this kind of just wanted to say it's not like that everywhere do you think that's fair to say? I personally didn't do a senior PWP role. I went from PWP to high intensity. Um, yeah. But I have heard from other seniors who really loved that varied role. So, I mean, I suppose you can stay in the PWP role. There's nothing wrong with that. For some people, that might be, you know, what they like, that fast-paced kind of environment. Um yeah. Yeah, someone that I remember speaking to who was a senior said that they liked that role and how varied it was because you have obviously clinical caseload, but then supervising other PWPs. Um, And I think it's really common. I know, especially for me, even when I was doing my PWP training, I was like, yeah, I'm doing my two years and then I'm stepping up. But it's like you said, but you can make a career out of just being a PWP. And we're not trying to like, I'm not trying to slam it or say, that it's no it doesn't you know, sound like you are at all like just, yeah <laughs> yeah I don't know exactly what you mean 
I guess it's personal choice, I guess. Yeah, it is. And and that environment that you work in, every mm-hmm. every talking therapy service runs slightly differently. Um, and, and that can make a big difference to your experience, I think. Yeah, I think I actually remember now that you said that when I was training as a PWP and um, there was a few of us from obviously a lot of different services um, mm-hmm. and we work in quite a, a deprived area where there is a lot of trauma and, you know, um, a lot more kind yeah. of difficult things going on. Whereas another girl that I did my training with was from an area where that wasn't really the case. So the cases that she was getting were kind of pure step two and there was less pressure with the contacts and things and she loved it and I think that definitely does make a difference yeah absolutely um it does I think if you're working in a deprived area and you're working with greater complexity than was expected originally when the stepped care model was designed and you're still got those expectations of contacts I think that's where it can you know break down a little bit and where staff um you know, staff well-being can can sometimes be be, you know, be lost a little bit um, because it really is hard to just relentlessly see that amount of people day after day after day after day if you're not seeing people who were originally really thought of as being suitable for step two, for step two, yeah, two work. So I think the model's fine, but I think it perhaps just needs to be adapted a little bit for the the different areas where you know where the services you know, is set up yeah it sounds it, it sounds quite sad in a way that it's almost like a therapist burnout that's the driving yeah. motivator to to make a career move you know not always but it is it, it kind of sounds like sometimes it gets to that point just complete burnout after two years um and then needing to move on from that it's really sad mm-hmm it was for me that was the case for me i knew by the time that i'd uh, um done my couple of years and was applying to go onto the high intensity um course i knew that i didn't want to stick with it for for too much longer i would have looked to it if i didn't get on the course i would have looked to have maybe go back into mental health nursing um or you know take a take a different path i'm curious actually so um thinking about the experiences that that you both have gone on to have so having either being on high intensity training at the moment or having had high intensity training um, if you could go back in time what advice would you have given to yourself sort of working at a step two level that you've learned since that is a good question (laughs) i don't know if this answers the question um but for me I kind of wish that I had a bit of the knowledge that I've got now than um, in terms of kind of CBT knowledge that I've got from this training. Because um, I feel like it would have maybe helped a little bit more in my PWP role. Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm. That yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I, I wonder, you know, there, there, there's a big, there's a marked difference, isn't there, between the training that happens at step two and the training that happens at step three. And everything I've ever heard, everybody who's done the PWP course tells me it's much harder training year than at step three um, for a variety of reasons. But it, it makes you wonder, really, doesn't it? Is why don't we just teach everybody at step three level but apply the skills in different ways? Because you're right, Pre, you know, 
it's that extra knowledge that could make all the difference to somebody at step two doing a six session piece of work with somebody mm-hmm. but having all that extra knowledge to somebody who's working at step three who has the luxury of longer sessions and can do a bit more intensive work but the knowledge is still valuable right so why do we even bother teaching at step two i wonder i don't know well i'm wondering actually and acknowledging that we have had some conversations where we've heard that recruitment at the moment for step three programs is a bit of a struggle i'm wondering if actually in the long run this that's actually what's going to happen um acknowledging that obviously talking therapies has has had this massive rebrand recently as well i'm wondering if that's the new vision that we're looking towards um but obviously uh, there's a lot up in the air there at the moment and and a lot of discussions um had um just sort of thinking about some of the reasons why you'd um go from low intensity to high intensity work as well um i'm curious i mean you 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 mentioned earlier brendan that you know some of it was stress is not really being counterbalanced by reward and and i was just wondering what other factors sort of influenced that decision one one thing that training at step two and practicing at step two did really give for me it just gave me for a thirst for for more knowledge I wanted to do what I was doing better. And so I learned some really good techniques at step two, you know, during my training, techniques that I use routinely now, even at step three, um, exposure therapy, um, behavioral activation. And I often revert, especially when things get complex with with clients at step three and things get hard, reverting to those simpler, not, I don't mean to, talk these sort of like strategies down at all but just reverting to these basics i use them all the time but learning those techniques and seeing them in practice and seeing them work gave me a thirst to know more and then encountering obstacles for when it didn't work or how you needed to adapt it and what i could do if i had a little bit longer just gave me that thirst for knowledge i wanted to learn how to do this better so that was part of part part of the issue for me not just stress and burnout but actually a desire i want to learn how to do i know there's more to this i just want to learn it it was uh the seeking of that reward of knowledge and being able to apply that knowledge as well right Got you. Uh, what about you, Preet? Was there anything else that was sort of driving you to make that step as well? I think I agree with what Brendan said there a little bit about that thirst for knowledge and especially, you know, thinking back to when I was doing assessments as a PWP, you know, if someone with, for example, OCD came through, it's like, oh, I can't do anything with that after stepping up. Or So it, I guess it's that cu- curiosity of, okay, what what do you how do you treat OCD and I want to be able to you know do those things and um yeah for me I think mm. it was yeah just building my knowledge and being able to treat more and have more knowledge on treating things than I had at, at step two yeah. mm. I also want to add as well I don't know if you're just being if it's not a factor for you or if you're just being dead polite but money right you get more money at step three you get paid you know much more handsomely and you have much more scope for growth I feel in in terms of things like EMDR training being a clinical Mm -hmm. supervisor which you could do at step two I think clinical lead roles which you probably couldn't do um, from a PWP perspective 
that's also a bit of a factor. It, it definitely was for me making the leap from counsellor to high intensity. Um, I wanted to develop and, and grow in that way. I, I wanted the financial recompense mm. as well, if I'm being completely honest. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think for me as well, it just seemed to open up more doors, like you said, those different kind of extra career paths you can take. Um, it gives you the option of maybe doing private work and things that you can't do as a PWP. So for me, it's, you know, it opens up a lot more doors than what you get as a PWP. The finances weren't really a motivation for me. I, I was a senior PWP, so, and when I qualified as a high-intensity therapist, I, I went into the same grade initially, but so it wasn't a big a big consideration for me but yeah the prospects of of growth in the career and the different things that you could do that was attractive and still is i think that's a really helpful point to help people out there listening weigh up whether you know sort of the costs and, and 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 benefits of that move as well so for some people you're right being at a senior pwp level it, it may not be worth that that trade-off but ultimately they they might really be rewarded by an increase in knowledge um or people not at mm. senior pwp level um the money might definitely be a, a motivator for them so i think um, um a really useful piece of information to cover there mm. um, how did you both find the transition from step two to step three work and the training process hard um so you mentioned earlier that you've heard people saying that step three, a step two training is harder than step three, but that wasn't my experience really. I found the step three training much more detailed in depth and demanding and uh, a very tough year to get through, if I'm being completely honest. Um, but I did find it very interesting. And that transition to the day-to-day work, I did find it sort of like really enjoyable um but i also felt quite exposed um when you're at step two and you reach the end of the line of what you can do with someone you can always step them up to step three they disclose a trauma that's difficult you know for you to work with at step two it's like okay um you don't have to panic because you can step that person up to step three um if treatment is difficult and not working out you can always have the option of stepping up to step three but when you're at step three you're kind of most of the time that's the end of the road getting into step four and secondary care psychology service is not a an easy sort of like path um for for clients to you know to take um so that responsibility that you have you don't always have the answers for it either um i found that very daunting uh, at first and anxiety provoking at first um you don't have the answers for you know for everything you know at step three and yeah um i i guess i've gotten used to, i've just gotten used to that it's still the case now sort of like three years after qualifying um but i've kind of like got used to it and still somehow managed to find my way around and through therapy um satisfactorily with most people despite that challenge that's quite interesting because that's not something that i've thought too much about yet i think being a trainee i'm just like supervisor what do i do (laughs) um and obviously we tend to work with simpler cases um so yeah i guess i've got that to deal with once i qualify but I think for me, in terms of the transition, the 
high intensity course is a lot more intense than the PWP. There's a lot more work. You do have to do that extra reading and put that extra work. And I'll be honest, the, the PWP training, I didn't do hardly any extra reading. I probably had one textbook for the for the course and and that was it. Um, so yeah, the high intensity, you do have to put the work in. But you, like Brendan said, you learn a lot more. And I do think I'm getting a lot more from this. Um, even just the, the group of people that I'm with, like the that makes a difference as well. You know, the people that I'm studying with now compared to as a PWP, it's a di completely different dynamic. I don't, I'm not sure why that is, but um, I think that makes a big difference as well. Thinking about that journey, and and you've you've both spoken about you know, using the journey, the training element of it to, to, to upskill and, and develop your knowledge in, in a variety of different areas. And I'm just wondering what pieces of step two knowledge um, or practice were sort of useful for you. I, mean, I'm, I know earlier, Brendan, you mentioned sort of being able to sort of reflect and, and fall back on the basics when you needed them. What particular items do you think you were able to carry across? And I suppose, likewise, were there any pieces of step two knowledge or practice that you were taking with you that you felt were actually unhelpful for the step three journey? Ooh, um, I use step two stuff that I learned step two all the time behavioral activation, activity diaries, activity scheduling, um, exposure therapy, hierarchies, graded hierarchies, the the, the four conditions. Um, use this sort of stuff all of the time. I still find it really, really useful. I've got additional knowledge about all of those things now and additional knowledge of how to adapt it and to make it work for people. Um, but still the, the basics I, I, I carry in my toolkit with me and really appreciate having those. Um, the one thing that I don't know, you alluded to this earlier, Pre, about the anxiety at step two level, um, the main sort of like um, toolkit for if your anxiety was not panic attacks or a phobia, then basically your treatment protocol involved worry time, really, worry time and a bit of relaxation. And that doesn't really cut the mustard all that much with the variety of anxiety disorders that we encounter at step three. And that's where, you know, your formulation comes into things a lot more and you, for you, in order for you to be able to establish what might be useful for people. But it was just kind of like a one size fit all sort of like, uh, for, for, for non panicky stroke phobic anxiety, the worry time. And I, I rarely saw it used, um, in a way that really helped keep people uh, get people you know living with their anxiety a little bit better yeah I definitely feel like at times it was all I was doing was worry time because that's all there was unless it was mm. like I said um a phobia or panic I'm wondering a little bit having the extra time in sessions at step three and we spoke a little bit about developing that therapeutic relationship and, you know, having the warmth in the room, the compassion that maybe you don't have time for. Think about the kind of soft and gentle stuff that perhaps you haven't space for at step two. How has that been? Has that been something that's been easy to bring into sessions for you or did that take a little while to adjust to? For me, um, like I said a little bit earlier, I mean, I suppose 
um, I always try to have, you know, you always try to, you know, show that compassion and things in your session. So I, I had that kind of at step two. Yeah. Um, but sometimes if a client would mention something, it's kind of like you don't want to dig any deeper because you haven't got the time or you don't want to open up that kind of worms. Um, so mm-hmm. I think for me, it, it, at step two, it was just about, okay, I've got half an hour. I've got to get through, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then from going from a half an hour session to having 15 minutes to an hour, um, I found that really difficult at first to kind of stop rushing through things. And especially, I know there's a big emphasis on it, the Socratic questioning and guided discovery and all of that. Um, That was something that I really, really struggled with at first because I'm so used to kind of not digging deeper and not asking those open questions and having to keep it you know quite closed and just get through what you need to for the session I'm not gonna lie it's still something that I'm working on now um I'm slowly getting better trying to you know to open up the sessions a little bit more hopefully I am anyway (laughs) um but yeah that was something that I really really did struggle with and I remember even talking to some of my colleagues that are on the uh, the training who were also PWPs. We were talking about things like the formulation, the five areas. And as a PWP, you'd be like, you know, you do the five areas and you'd be like, oh, can you see how it's all connected? But to actually take a step back and ask those more open questions, you know, so what do you make of that and that kind of thing? That's something that really, um, yeah, I think I'm still trying to kind of get out of that a little bit. For me, it helped that I got uh, years of nursing experience behind me. Um, the era that I trained in as a mental health nurse was very person-centered. And so the compassion, the open questions, the explorative style, that was um, that, that was always there. I was trained that way when I did my nurse training. And it was actually quite hard to leave that at the door when I was a PWP and be a little bit more directive as Preet described. So I took to that aspect of step three work quite quickly. Yeah. And I was relieved to be able to do it again. Yeah. yeah. But I get what Preet is saying. It's um you don't have if 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 your experience of of delivering sort of therapy and treatments for people with mental health problems is is at, it's just at step two, then you are going to be conditioned into this like really quick fire way of working that doesn't leave a lot of space yeah and that you know not being avoidant of but not wanting to go there when there's a bit of emotion brought Mm. into the room because yeah that that could be catastrophic couldn't it yeah Uh, the knock-on effects for the rest of your day and the other clients that are waiting and then we ask you as high intensity trainees to you know make them sit with the emotion (laughs) right let's get in there and stay with it and be comfortable and dig a little bit so that 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 must be quite difficult. I loved that about the role, though. Yeah. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> but it, it is good. Yeah. It is good. Those are the magic moments you crave for. Yeah. You know, um, when you come into, at some point in all of our lives, we all decided we wanted to help people with this kind of stuff for whatever reason. And uh, when you are in those moments where the emotion is high and learning is taking place and growth is taking place and you're part of it and you're there and you're feeling it and you're witnessing it. That's, that's like the mat, the, the, the mouse in the, uh, um, in, in the maze. And it's kind of like, it's, it, you know, it's raining rewards on you. It's like, <laughs> yeah. 
It's, it's raining dopamine. It is like it. That's a lot of cheese for a mouse. And you don't get that at PWP quite as often. You do get it. You do get it. You know, people do get better at step two and they learn stuff from you um, that really makes sense to them. They go away and it can be life-changing um, for them. Um, but it's often the case that, you know, you have a sense of incompleteness. I, it's what I found at step two. You could have done more, could have done more. But like you said, Brendan, there, there are cases where step two is enough. That is nice to see, I think, you know, when you do have those moments where what you've done is enough. So it's not it's always that it's not enough for some people like i said just learning the basics is enough i'm I'm curious actually so we've spoken there about the importance of that that shift in affect in the room and sitting with it um and and also just thinking as well um um, step three work is um, i'm guessing a bit more longitudinal as well you've got the time to be able to almost track back someone's journey and figure out where a lot of these um, a lot of their challenges might might stem from a lot of these seminal moments in their life that have shaped who who they are and and the beliefs that they hold as as individuals and knowing that i mean people deal with these things in different ways so some people might be really up for the challenge and immediately throw themselves into it some people might be a little avoidant of that because it's a, a big shift to make i'm i'm curious as to how you found yourself dealing with that change and what advice you would give to people who were who were struggling to to bridge that gap a little bit i managed that that change okay um it made a lot of sense to me when i learned about longitudinal factors when we learned about core beliefs in our training when we learned about dysfunctional assumptions rules for living um that really really made a lot of sense to me and I introduced it into my work with clients from quite an early stage. And now it, it forms the backbone of what I do. And five areas model is great. It has such great explanatory power. But if you are able to sit with your client and explain that this, what's happening in the here and now didn't just develop fully formed, you know, here in, you know, right now in 2023, there's a history to this. And explaining how early experiences model our core beliefs or mold our core beliefs, sorry, and uh, how those core beliefs influence the assumptions that we make and the rules that we develop for ourselves. Um, that is often at a time where people, that's where those magic moments can often happen. More so in my experience than will happen in just with a simple five areas. That's where things really begin to start to make sense to the people who you work with. So um, I adapted to that sort of like quite well and maybe was fortunate enough to have early on, even in my training, some sort of like really good moments where that really made sense for my clients and um, they re- they really kicked on from, from the knowledge that they gained from their own longitudinal formulation. I think for me, the formulation stuff at first, to be honest, I did struggle with it a little bit. Um, I mean, it made sense, you know, when, when you're doing the teaching and you know you're at uni and stuff and then putting it into practice it's a little bit like it's it's always a bit different isn't it from when you learn it to doing it in real life um and we were always taught you know um you do your assessment you do a formulation you need to have a strong formulation before you move on to the treatment um but for me there was times where I was like oh my gosh I'm on like session six or seven and 
I'm not doing anything yet. And I think that's a bit of the PWP in me a little bit that's like, come on, we need to be doing something. We're not we're not doing anything yet. And there's been times when my supervisor's like, it's fine, like <laughs> chill out. Um so yeah, I'm i I'm still I'm getting there. But yeah, it's a journey. I've I've definitely noticed that, Pete, with people that I've supported from a supervisor perspective on training courses. Um it's it's often people who have worked as PWPs and then come onto the training who will be coming in at session five and six and saying, yeah, they're not better yet. I haven't done this and we are, we're not doing any work. But when you look at what has gone on in the room, there has been so much work happening um, and it's really valuable stuff. It's that history taking, information gathering, you know, understanding somebody's personal um, situation and how that's impacting. There's normally loads of maintenance stuff that's gone on, but trainees haven't been able to label that yet because they're not even quite sure that that's what they've just done. Um, and yeah, there's this haste, isn't there? Like, I've, I've got to get it done quickly. I suppose even when you're qualified, dependent on the service you work with, there's still some of that because um, some services, we, you know, we don't work to the session numbers we should be working to. Um, and that can lead to a little bit of skipping over some of that really important groundwork, I feel. Um, but we still have longer than you do at step two. So but I've seen that so much. You know, I haven't done anything yet. And actually, really, let's have a look. You've done tons, tons and tons. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And what you what you said about that sort of continuing even after qualification, that I think is a really important point. So um, I find actually even even sometimes three or four sessions in with a client, I'm sitting there and I'm going, well, we haven't really achieved any, we haven't made any change yet. But then I'm like, well, hang on, it's still really early on. And and even even then, we're taking the time to painstakingly put a really intricate puzzle together. And sometimes that's the really important stuff. If, if they haven't had the opportunity in their life to actually take a, to, to put all these pieces down and take a step back and go, this is what everything is. Even that in itself can be a hugely powerful moment for them. So even that um, is, is a really important piece of work and and shouldn't be underestimated um i think so i think that's definitely an, uh, an important takeaway an important reflection for me uh from that um i'm and i'm wondering actually so we've spoken about some of the, the the challenges some of the carryovers from step two to step three some of the um things that are different between working at those two levels and i'm, I'm curious just sort of thinking back to that time when you were about to embark on on training what were the worries or fears that you had I remember at the beginning being like what am I going to do for an hour and 12 (laughs) 16 sessions what the hell am I going to do in all that time um I think there's always that oh am I I mean it still comes up now am I like good enough to do this or am I going to be helping them enough and I think as well the jump from working with more complex disorders so things like OCD or even PTSD and and things like that um that fear of I don't know screwing it up or that you're going to make someone worse um yeah that's still definitely something that's still there 
I was fearful that I would just never be as smart or as clever as the, the, the step three workers that were already in our service. It was just, uh, you know, whenever I went to them with a problem or asked for their advice on step three issues like PTSD or OCD, um, I was just like, wow, they just know so much and they just seem to know what's going on without, <clears throat> without you almost like reading my mind. And I thought, am I ever going to get to the, you know, the level that, you know, that they're at? And I was worried, you know, about that. And I don't know if I am at the level that I thought they were at or not. But I'm a lot more confident three years in than I was and then when I was doing my training. I'm also really, really glad that you you said that, Brendan, actually, because um, I've recently been added to, to a peer supervision group, admittedly. Uh, the first time they added me to the to the peer supervision, I didn't say anything because I just wanted to suss it out. But my God, it scared the sh- out of me just the fact that <laughs> everyone knows so much and i'm sitting there completely silent going i don't think i really have anything to offer here because i think in my mind just before that supervision group i thought oh you know it would just be like peer supervision groups at uni you know you'll all listen to a recording or something and then you'll, you'll chip in your ideas um but it turns out everyone's actually it seems as though everyone's got their sorted right um and so it is sometimes it feels really scary um particularly when you're sat in a room with people who've been doing this work for a long long time and have got loads of miles under their belt i'm wondering about risk um and how that's been for you at step three i wonder if you have any thoughts on that has it been any different i guess and the reason i'm asking is because we are moving into a kind of I don't know a new era of supporting clients with risk risk factors um we're moving away from traditional you know um psychometric support helping us to make decisions about how we manage and support and and even work with clients who who might be presenting with risk and I'm thinking your point earlier about at step two, we you've got somewhere else to go. Um, how does that feel at step three? Does it feel any different? Does it cause any anxieties? Does it just feel the same? Um, I think it's easier at step three than it is at step two, to be quite honest. You have got more time to address risk. You have more time to um, address it in a different way, really. Uh, you've got fewer people on your caseload you have fewer appointments each day if you're seeing eight people five days a week that's 40 clients that's much more chance of you encountering risk you've got much less time in which to manage that risk as well um i used to feel a little bit anxious if risk came up and there was risk at step two because if it intruded too much into the 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 30 minutes session then you started to think well how are you going to get everything how are you actually going to improve that person's mental health to reduce the risk if uh, you're using a third of your sessions or a quarter of your sessions risk managing whereas now you can have a much more organic conversation about about risk you know tell you know tell me about these thoughts that you that you've been having how bad are they what kind of impact are they having on your day-to-day life you know i i how close do you ever get to feeling like you might want to act on these thoughts? What you know, what would stop you from? It's a much more organic and natural um, conversation that often people are grateful grateful to you for having, um, and 
you've got more time, you've got fewer clients, so you don't have to have that conversation quite as often. Um, I think it's easier at step three, I'll be honest. That's, yeah, I had not thought of that at all. And that time factor again, mm. um, so important. It is. I suppose so far in my training journey, I've not come across anyone who's particularly risky. A lot of the cases are, you know, flagged as suitable for trainees. So I suppose I've been fortunate in a way that I've not quite come across that. Um, but I can see what you're saying, Brendan, with, you know, having that time to explore things um, a little bit more and a reduced caseload. And I think at step two, it was something that we used to come across more, you know, doing assessments. You know, you're doing that telephone assessment. You don't know what you're going to get on the other end of the line. Um, and then having that, that, like I said, that time pressure and having to manage that, but then knowing that you've got other appointments booked in. Yeah, step two, I think it was definitely stressful. But in my um, experience so far, it's not something that I've really come across as of yet. Earlier, Preet, you mentioned one of the worries about um, moving towards step three was oh how am I going to fill an entire hour but then Brendan's obviously mentioned there that actually that that time can be a luxury and um, I'm pretty sure I mean if if Shell wanted to out me right now she'd tell you that usually an hour for me isn't actually evenly enough to do all the work that I'd like to do with the client so um, just just to let you know now and let anyone who's listening uh, know out there if if you're worried about how you're going to fill an hour you won't be holding that worry for long um so um in fact actually make the most uh, particularly when you're when you are getting the chance to work with clients who maybe are slightly less risky or slightly less complex in presentation savor that time i think as well rather than feeling sort of rushed off your feet all the time um i suppose um uh, one question um on behalf of everyone listening, um, if you could give any advice to PWPs who are hoping to go on the journey to become a high-intensity CBT therapist, what would those pieces of advice be? My number one bit of advice would just be to slow down. Just slow down. Because it's come up um, repeatedly sort of like over the course of this discussion you've got to do so much at step two and do it so quickly and it's so hard to you know to slow down initially so when you first start doing step three slow down take your time i think for me um it's i mean i thought oh i've done step two i've got that kind of basic knowledge of cbt um but then coming into you know, the more kind of in-depth formulations and things that we do. Um, and I'll be honest, it was diff- more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Um, I thought, or maybe, I think in our cohort, it was actually discussed that maybe people that were uh, that were PWP before were at an advantage compared to people that had come from other professions. Um, and But I really think that it is, it's not actually like that um and there are times where you know even coming from a pwp background where you've got that little bit of knowledge there's th- times where it didn't make sense for me and it's taken time for it to click and, and i think i'm getting to the point where it is starting to things are starting to click a little bit more 
um, and I'm just over halfway through my training I've still got you know a few months to go so don't be disheartened if it if it's you know more difficult than you think or it takes a while to kind of get it just stick with it and it will come I'm hoping it will come together for me by the end of the year but yeah I think those are great pieces of advice and I, I suppose Shell as well as someone who has supervised both PWPs and high intensity um, workers mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm curious actually as to whether you've supervised someone both before and after um, they have completed that journey. I'm just wondering if there's any pieces of advice that, that you wanted to add to that, anything that you've seen from a, a supervisory capacity that you think would be helpful for people to bear in mind. Mm, yes, I, I think one of the things I've noticed in, in most of the people that I've worked with and supported is the lack of confidence um, that kicks in quite early on. I think, you know, you do feel quite de-skilled, I feel, at the beginning. You know, um, I certainly imagined that I had a really great skill set that I was taking into my high intensity training. But actually, yeah, it's a whole it's a whole new um, set of skills that you're learning. So. The imposter syndrome as well, that lingers. Um, I, I imagined it would just disappear once I qualified. Um, doesn't, I still feel it now. So don't wait for that to go, I guess. Um, but do something to support your, yourself in building some confidence in your skill. If you're given good feedback, take it as read. Don't question it. Don't think people are saying things to be nice to you because they're not. Um, if you've done a good piece of work and you get a good piece of feedback it's you deserve it um i think too often people are a little bit too humble and will you know dismiss it as as being well it's just what i should be doing no it's hard it's a really hard year i think that's a a really good piece of advice and and it's interesting actually so um recently i've i've actually been having some cbt myself recently and it's really interesting having cbt as a cbt therapist because particularly when the cbt therapist knows you're a cbt therapist where they're like Mm -hmm. well i'm not going to teach you to suck eggs right you know exactly how these techniques work um but just in terms of operationalizing one of those things that you mentioned about you know holding on to those pieces of good feedback that you get um just one thing that, that came up in discussion once was actually just writing them down on post-it notes and just putting them like above your screen, mm-hmm. wherever you work, just so they're there. And so you're reminded of them. Um, because I think, I think you're right. Sometimes if you're not holding on to them, they can feel quite fleeting. And I think it's important to, to, to remind yourself of the good days that you've had and, and, the, and, the, and the skills that you do have, that you have worked really hard to develop. I would like to say, um, firstly, is a big thank you to, to Preet and Brendan uh, for coming on the show today. Um, I was just wondering, actually, um, would you mind sticking around? Because we've actually received an email with um, a few questions that I think it might be helpful to have your input on. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you'd be okay to, to stick around and, and help us answer those? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Amazing. Fantastic. So we will take a short break and we will be back with uh, a little segment that we like to call Socratic questions. Don't go away. (laughs) 
So we've received this email from someone who has requested that they stay anonymous. Uh, and it says, Hi, Ravi, Michelle, Preet and Brendan. I recently discovered your podcast and started listening to it. It's really great and so informative. For context, I'm a PWP with over one year's experience and thinking whether to apply for the September 2024 cohort or January 2025. Is it better to stay in my current IAP service to do the high intensity training? If I applied to other services for high intensity training outside of my current IAP service, does this look okay? And do all the universities delivering high intensity training have the same interview process? If not, what are some differences? Thank you. So if we, um, I suppose, break that down. So what about the, the first point about staying um, in the current IAP service? What were your experiences with that? And what, what are your sort of recommendations? I stayed in the same service that I worked at at step two. Um, I, I guess there are pros and cons, really. I, I guess as, as is the case to a lot of the answers that we give a CBT therapist uh, is it depends. Um, if you work in a in a good service where you're well supported, where there is a good workplace culture, then I see no reason why you would benefit from you know from leaving unless you wanted just to have a little bit of variety, professional variety in your life, and just like test the water somewhere else. Um, but if you didn't necessarily feel that you were in the right place for you at that moment in time, yeah, change. Um, I suspect it might be quite easy to change. Um, at the end of the day, sort of like if you're doing your high intensity training, there's a there's a sum of money coming from um, from somewhere else, like from training budgets provided by I think NHS England ultimately, that your your your, your new employer basically gets a free member of staff. It doesn't come out of their pay you know, their their payroll budget. So I think you'd be welcomed at other services. So I guess it just depends on what works for you. Would be my advice. So I was the same as Brendan. I stayed um, with the same service that I worked with at step two. Um, and I think my reasons for that is I was comfortable where I was. Um, the management were great. I actually told them that I wanted to, you know, want, wanted to progress up to high intensity. They were really supportive of that. So I was really fortunate in that sense. Um, but yeah, like I said, it depends. I know my... Um, when I was a trainee PWP, my supervisor back then, she went on to do the high intensity, but she wanted to have that fresh start and, and go somewhere different. So, yeah, I guess it just depends on. I was just going to add, um, don't be afraid to ask questions. So, you know, talk to your service and ask them what what does it look like to be a trainee in this service? What, you know, what can you offer me? What are your expectations of me on my training year? Um, it's okay to ask those things so that you've got an idea in your head if that's going to fit in with your your family, you know, other commitments. Um, because it's a really intensive year. Um, there are there are some trusts that want you to be on site for your study time, for example. So they mm. want you to be in base, studying at a desk and visible. There are other services that are really happy for you to take that time at home and use it however you want to use it because we all study in different ways, right? There's no right way. So ask the questions and, and don't be afraid to do that. And I think actually if you're made to feel that you shouldn't be asking those questions, that's probably a really good indicator that maybe you want to look outside of your own service as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point because um, in my service, 
we have um well i suppose with all training you have three days in service and two days at university um but in my service we get half a day study leave within those three days in the service um but i know of people who are on my cohort who don't get that half a day study leave um i really value that um half a day study time um so i guess there's little um little things like that to consider as well you know what what that looks like and um in our service as well we just do one day face-to-face work again that can vary across other services I know again someone else on my cohort where they've asked the trainees to come in every single day um they want them in the office so yeah I guess little things like that uh, are worth considering as well I was about to say that as well, actually. There was um, someone similar in, in, in my cohort, and I think um, um, it struck me as being quite interesting, actually, how how some trusts and some services were basically saying, well, if you're a trainee, you have to come in every day, um, which I thought was 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 quite interesting, um, actually. Um, on that final question, does the, I suppose, the interview and application process look the same for, for each university, or, do, or does it differ? between each no it, it does differ yeah it's it is um it's dependent on what the university themselves are looking for um there will typically be the academic test that's pretty standardized but again that that will look different depending mm-hmm. on the university that you apply to um different services will interview in different ways so sometimes you'll be part of a joint interview process for example where the university and the placement are together you have that interview you only have to sit that once whereas other places it's a separate interview and then you do the whole process again with the service so um it's not very consistent it's not it's not very uniform across the country um but a, a service if you inquire as to what their process looks like they should be able to give you that information um, and they also will have more knowledge about the universities that they've got places for. Um, so again, they, they should be able to provide you with that information so you can make an informed decision about what's going to work for you. Definitely. I think I think that's some really helpful advice there. And, and speaking of informed decisions as well, I think there's been some really good answers to, to all of your questions there. So thank you for, for writing in to us um, with those questions. Um, and a quick note to anyone else listening out there as well, if, if you have any questions about um, high intensity uh, CBT training, if you have uh, any questions about what life could look like after that, uh, drop us an email at two lost souls podcast at gmail.com uh, or on Twitter at TLS underscore pod. Um, just to quickly say as well, uh, a big thank you to, to Preet and Brendan um, for coming in today. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts on what we've discussed today and how are you feeling after your, after your podcast experience today? I was really nervous about doing the podcast uh, but I was like I'm going to step out my comfort zone and in true CBT style I was like I'm going to do this bit of a behavioral experiment um, but I really hope it's been useful for everyone listening um, so yeah any questions that you have hope that's maybe made things a little bit clearer if you are considering going on the high intensity journey but yeah thank you so much for having me I've um, really enjoyed it it's been fun I'm happy to come back if you'd have me back <laughs> 
I've really enjoyed it too. And uh, it, uh, it's great to have that opportunity just to reflect where I've come from, you know, those step two days and think a little bit more about step two life. Um, you get kind of like, um, you know, your, your, your attention gets focuses on the day-to-day -day of your own working life in the here and now, doesn't it, when you're working in frontline mental health, whatever your role is. So it's been great to have the opportunity just to reflect on this change that I've made myself, and it's been it's been good for me to do that. So, yeah, thanks for having me on as well. It's been a pleasure. No worries at all. Thank you, both of you, so much for coming, and, and definitely we'll, we'll have you both back if, if you're up for it. I'm sure that our inbox is going to be full of, of, of more questions as well about about that PWP journey because I think um, you know it is it can be quite a nerve wracking move for for some people. Um, and I, I, again, if anyone has any questions, send them in. And uh, if you're if you're both happy to come back at some point, we'd we'd love to have you back if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Of course. Amazing, fantastic. Well, well, thank you again for 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 sharing what you have today, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Cheers. Thank you. So, Shell, I really enjoyed that. What did you make of that conversation? It was great. It was really good. And what I, I think what I enjoyed the most was I, I've never been a PWP. Mm. Can't talk about that part of, you know, the experience because it's it's not my experience. So I, I just found it really interesting. Um, and as guests, how engaging. They were brilliant. Totally, definitely. And similarly, actually, um, it had me reflecting on my practice, actually, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, I know we've done an episode in the past on sort of self-care and looking after yourself as a therapist. And um, I remember sort of asking a question in that episode about s sort of signs and symptoms of burnout that someone might see or experience. And it, I found it really interesting that actually just thinking about the way people would have to work as a PWP in terms of, you know, a very limited opportunity to, to ask Socratic questions, really limited opportunity to sort of open particular boxes mm -hmm. for fear that you'd kind of go over that half an hour limit. Mm -hmm. um, I find that actually that, that taught me that if I start to get burnt out, that's the start of thing. I, so that's the sort of thing I, I start to notice in myself yeah. and my practice at step three, really interestingly. So I think it was really useful to, to reflect on that, but also reflect on, um, I suppose, some of the blind spots I have from, from not coming from that world and yeah. not having the knowledge that, that a PWP would have. Um, and also made me appreciate as well um, that I think courses are, are, and, and particularly the course I was on, they're looking to um, develop quite a diverse range of students. So having PWPs on a course, non-PWPs, people from um, lots of different backgrounds and appreciating that that level of existing knowledge and, and that existing knowledge as a whole kind of comes in different flavors yeah. um and it's not that one is better than the other it's just that we all learn different things and yeah. generally when we when we work as a team really well um we get mm -hmm. to combine those bits of knowledge and, and integrate it into some into some pretty cool practice so i, yeah, I took absolutely. that away from it um, which i thought yeah um a big thank you uh, once again to rebecca 
uh, for sending in uh, the email that uh, inspired uh, that episode alongside lots uh, of other uh, emails that we've had as well um please um continue to 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 email us if you've got any questions or any ideas that you would like us to explore on the podcast uh, the email address um as usual is two lost souls podcast at gmail.com uh, or you can reach out to us on twitter at tls underscore pod I just wanted to say thank you to Anne-Marie who sent me a uh, message on Twitter asking when the podcast would be back. She mentioned that she was finding it really interesting and helpful. So I'm sorry that we were away for such a long time. It's my fault entirely. Um, we're moving jobs and it's been a bit busy, but I'm really hopeful that we're going to be a bit more consistent now. Ravi, yeah. Uh, yeah, fingers yeah. crossed. So, so um, ad- admittedly, it's not just Shell's fault that we've we've taken a bit of a break. We've we've both kind of had a lot of stuff going on, yeah. um, actually, and um, yeah, it, life sort of happens, and sometimes certain things have to have to take a back seat. But that being said, um, it's really nice to to be gathered again for an episode like this and i really enjoyed today's episode so hopefully we'll be able to to convene again and and thank you all for for sending in um your messages of support as well and it's it really means a lot to to us to know that that this show is meaningful for you um and is helpful for you so so a big thank you for that all that's left to say is a big thank you to Preet and to Brendan for joining us uh, for today and for sharing their knowledge, time and expertise with us. We found that really helpful. Um, also, a big thank you to you, Shell. Thanks, Ravi. And also a big thank you to all of you out there listening. And we will catch you next time on Two Lost Souls. Two Lost Souls was presented by Ravi Amrath and Michelle Sutton. To get in touch, contact TLS underscore pod on Twitter or email twolostsoulspodcast at gmail.com.